We're going to be looking today at the subject of Gideon's 300 and how God wrought a, a great victory against the odds through him. And I'm going to read the whole of the passage, which is found in Judges 7. And while we're reading it, I suppose my question to you today is, if you were alive at that time, would you have been one of Gideon's 300? You know, the New Testament tells us that the Old Testament is as relevant today as it was then, and that these things happened in the Old Testament for our instruction. So we can look back at how God worked and how people responded in those days and say, well, what does this mean for me today? So, Judges chapter 7 and verse 1 following. <clears throat> <coughs> then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying... Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I'll test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of people, uh, the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to the mouth was 300 but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the people go. Uh, so the 300 men took the people's provisions and the trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel each to his tent, but retained the 300 men and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you're afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you'll hear what they say, and afterwards your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend and said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and it struck it, so that it fell and it turned upside down, so that the tent lie flat, lay flat. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joas, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship, returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. 
He divided 300 men into companies and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpets all around the camp and say for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outsides of the camp at the beginning of the middle of the watch, where they just posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that are in their hands. And when the companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and their trumpets in their right hands, blowing and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as, uh, as far as Bethsaida towards Zariah, so to the edge of Abdamel by Tabah. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued them. Gideon sent messages throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barar and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned and they took the waters as far as Barbeth and Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zerub, and they killed Oreb on the rock of Oreb. We'll leave it there. So we see this incredible story of how the few delivered the many and how God got all the glory. I think the story here is the faithfulness of a few people can deliver many. And that with God, the outcome does not depend on human might, but upon God's might and God's strength. This is all about God taking the weak things of the world and confounding the wise. This is all about God coming into a desperate situation and making it more desperate and then making it even more desperate again until God makes the situation that was impossible to begin with absolutely, totally, incredibly impossible. And the reason that he's doing that is that people should know how strong their God is and that they should know that God is the one that delivers, not human beings. So this is an incredible story. I mean, it starts with Gideon. We won't go back to Gideon. I did preach on Gideon last year. But Gideon, he was the least in Israel, the least in his house. And his house was the least in Israel, and his tribe was the smallest. And he was hiding, trying to get some grain. And he was hiding in, 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 a, in a big storage container when God came to him, and God spoke to him and hailed him as, as a mighty man of valor. And... Uh, Gideon looked at himself and said, mighty man of valor, don't you see? I am the weakest of the weak. I'm the smallest in my family. And yet you address me as mighty man of valor. Well, God proved himself to Gideon, told him to get up and destroy the altars of Baal, which he did at night. And because he destroyed the altar of Baal, he was named Jerubbabel, which means let Baal look after himself. And so God took the tiniest, weakest, least warrior type person that you could imagine and decided that he would be with him. Because how many of you know that, that when, 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 if you take one plus God, you're in a majority, even if the whole world is against you. So this is a great story to encourage us 
that God delights in doing the impossible, and also that God also delights in bringing impossible situations and circumstances about. There'll be times in your life when you faced impossible situations. And some of you may have a testimony over how you looked at yourself one day and thought, it's impossible, it's never going to happen, it's finished, it's over. But then God steps in in his mysterious ways and before you realise it, uh, what you thought was impossible has not only become possible, it's actually taken place. Has anybody ever been there where you really honestly thought the circumstance or situation was all over? It was literally impossible, but somehow God mysteriously turned it around. Just wave at me if you, if you do. So that's quite a few of us here. And, and you may have experienced that, and you may experience that again. It's typical of how God deals with his people in the Bible to allow them to become in impossible situations. And even when the situation is a bit difficult, God will often make that a bit difficult into totally impossible. He'll allow the thing to wind down so low that, that it just becomes, you laugh. Remember when Sarah laughed, when the angels said, you're going to have a child, she laughed. She laughed because it wasn't just improbable, it was totally and utterly impossible. Uh, the situation had gone on for so long uh, that, that, that it was, even Abraham, it said, in hope, Romans 4, he believed against hope because he knew the reality that his body was dead for baby making and his wife's womb was dead for baby making. It was impossible. God had allowed it to descend into a total impossibility so that when God came through, there was no doubt, not a little doubt, but no doubt that this was the hand of God. God. It wasn't the hand of God and 10,000 people or 20,000 people. So maybe on a good day, you know, we might have carried the field anyway. This is a really important principle for you and I to understand because it was the same principle that happened with Jesus. Now, Jesus never wavered in his faith and hope, but everybody else around him did. Even though he told them it was necessary for him to die, be put in the tomb and rise again on the third day, they didn't take any notice of what he was saying. They must have thought maybe he was speaking figuratively because the disciples knew dead men don't rise. And so when Jesus died, it was all over for everybody that was around him. They didn't believe any of the things that he'd said. It was finished. It was over. Even when the, the women saw that the tomb was empty and had had a visitation by the angels, his closest disciples refused to believe. In fact, the Greek says they thought that the women were telling fairy tales. And so this is a principle. And on that day of resurrection, my God, can you imagine what it must have been like? when you literally thought it was all over, all the hopes and the plans and the prophecies and the ministry and the three years that you'd followed Jesus, and now it's all over, it's finished. You saw them take him and bury him in the grave, but on the third day he's standing before you and he's saying, touch me, ghosts have no flesh and bone. Imagine the goosebumps, imagine the, the flood of power and expectation that would cause you to be ready for a new Pentecost. And so when, when God saw the 135,000 uh, that, that Gideon had assembled ready to go to battle, he said, this is far too many, far too many. 
It was far too few to begin with because there was 450,000 of the Midianites that were waiting in battle. You say, how do you know that? Well, if you go to Judges chapter 8, verse 10, it tells you how many were in there at the time. So you had uh, 450,000 uh, Midianites against 30... Uh, sorry, oh, sorry, I missed that. 135,000. I misread my own thing. 135,000 Midianites against 32,000. So that's 450 to 1 odds against it. Even, even Betfair wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't give those types of odds. Not that we know anything about Betfair. <laughs> 450 to 1 on. It's, it's, it's a total loss. 32,000 against 135,000. There's just no way you're going to win. And then God comes along and says there's too many. My question to you at the beginning is this. Would you have been one of the 300? Well, here's the first thing that happens. God says, look, this is too many. I won't get the glory enough. You won't realize how powerful I am. You'll still think that you had some part to play in it. And that's not good because I want you totally reliant on me 100% for 100% of the things. I don't want you going thinking it's half you, half me, 50% me, 50% God, or even 80% me on 20% God. I want you to be utterly, totally dependent on me so that you can experience the type of divine deliverance that is available for those who rely on God today in any circumstance that they face. And so he said, now, whoever's afraid and trembling, they can go home. So out of the 32,000, 22,000 left. Think about this. It was the opportunity. I'm sure everybody felt a bit of fear. After all, there was 32,000 of them. And uh, later on in the description, it said that the, the armies looked like locusts and you couldn't even count the camels that were there. I think a lot of people would be, you know, hoping that God was with them. But this opportunity to go back to the village, this opportunity to go back to the town, this opportunity not to fight. I mean, if it all goes wrong, you'll still have to live in oppression like you have for the last generation under the Midianites, coming and stealing your harvest and oppressing you, but at least you won't lose your life. And so many people uh, fell at this, at this, this uh, first hurdle and uh, they, they returned. They weren't willing, they wanted change, but they weren't willing to fight for it. They weren't willing to believe God, to have courage, to say, I'd rather die than live as a slave under the Midianite power. They refused to believe God's man of power for the hour. And this wasn't just a, a TV statement, he really was, Gideon. Uh, although he looked like the weakest of them all, and in himself he was, he was God's man of power for the hour, and God had put his hand on him, but they looked at him and they said, he's not the man. He's not the man. What they wanted was some sort of Saul figure, I guess. He was someone big and boastful and brash, and someone who didn't need God to, to make a statement, or didn't need God to make an impression. Gideon made no impression on those that are around him, except that God was with him. 
They wanted someone that even if God wasn't with him, they would make a suitable political and, uh, and warrior uh, impression on them. So they left. But those that stayed, at least they thought, we've got to fight for something. We've got to go where God's man of God is, ta- where, where God's man is taking us. We've got to stand up and be counted. We have to face these fears sometime or we'll always be subject to these fears. You know, when you stand up and you face your fears head on, usually they're not as frightening as you thought them to be. That's a really important thing to learn in life. Sometimes we dodge that which we fear. We go out of our way to, to dodge that which we fear, that which we worry. We don't, want to, we don't want to face it head on, so we hide from it. Or, or we take action to avoid it. There was a dog. I used to live in a village in the Yorkshire Dales. And on my way back from school uh, in this very farming village, I had to come down a hill that curved where my house was. And in the house on the corner, it was a lovely house, it was a retired racing driver, they had an Afghan hound called Rana. Oh, okay, I get shivers just thinking about that. And I remember I was about seven or eight at the time. Every day I, I came back from school, I had to do the Rana run. The Afghan hound, they're about that big, or they are when you're at seven or eight. And they had a big fence, but Rana, every time Rana saw me coming home, it would go for me. And, and it would go for the fence, and it would get higher and higher and higher. And then one day, it jumped the fence and came for me. Now, I don't know if it was plain or not. I ran down that hill as fast as I possibly could and um, I made it to... And as I opened the door, it clipped my heel. Well, when I used to go home from that time, I didn't go down the road. What I did is I went over the hill, crossed the farmer's field, over the hedge, and then back into my garden because I, I wanted to avoid Rana. But, and this was going on every single time. So one day, I, I just thought, I can't be going. It's getting dark. I don't want to go through the fields. So I went down, and Rana jumped the fence and came to me, but he came to me so quickly I didn't have chance to run. Before I realized it, it was eye to eye. <laughs> I had no option but to face my fear. I had no option. I would have run. So I'm not like one of I would have run. And I just went, Rana, no! <laughs> and, and Rana just stopped and wagged its tail. <laughs> so I think there's a lesson in that. I wish I hadn't had to go through it to teach you it. But there's a lesson in that. You face your fear. And so these people, some of them wouldn't face their fear, and they went away fearful. And the problem was, when they got the victory, they knew no more about themselves than they did at the beginning. They enjoyed the victory that was to come, but they they hadn't changed during that victory. They, They couldn't say, well, I was part of the victory. They would say to themselves, we got the victory, but I don't know if some problem would happen again. I don't know if those same fears are still in me. God will test us. God will try us. God will send us Afghan hounds called Rana in order for us to stand up 
at the right time in the right way and say no to our fears and then realize that there was nothing to fear all along. But that wasn't enough. And so <laughs> there was only um, a few thousand of, of them left, 10,000. The 10,000 must be thinking, what are we doing? Well, here we are. We're believing God. And then God says to, to Gideon, still too many. It's already impossible, but God wants to make it so impossible that there's just no way it can happen. And so he says, they're too many for me, and, uh, and, and, and I need to whittle them down. And I think Gideon must be thinking, how, you know, how many is he going to He's going to take another 10 or 20 or something like that? And so we know the story, and the story is, is that they go to the water. There's many ways of interpreting the Hebrew here about who drinks and who laps and all that lot. I'm not going to get into that, but there's a principle here. And they find this water, and, and, and what happens in, 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 in one version or one way of looking at it is this, is you get two type of people. You get who would have become the 300, and what they do is they come to the water, and they're alert, and they're at watch, and they're very, very thirsty, so they take up the water and they lap it from their hands. But they're on guard, they're alert, they, 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 they've got their, they haven't had to take their swords off their belts, they're careful, and they're the 300. And then the others, well, they just see the water, they're so parched with thirst that they just dive headlong in, in ways. They just put their uh, head in the water and start drinking that beautiful, crystal clear. They're not thinking about the enemies. All they're thinking about is their immediate needs. And so one way of approaching this text, which I am today, is to say this, is to say that the 300, they were careful and responsible about the mission that God had sent them on. They, know, they knew that they needed water, but their needs did not dominate their actions. They understood they had needs. They understood that they needed to replenish their body uh, with fluid and to take shim. They knew that, but they also knew there was an enemy about. They also knew that they weren't just there camping by the lake for some fishing and some diving and some Swedish sauna or whatever you might do out by the lakes, but they knew that they were, they were there for a purpose. So there was a sense of, we're going to take this water, but we know we've got a job to do. We're responsible, we're careful. Where the other people were careless. They weren't thinking about the job. They weren't thinking about uh, the call. They weren't thinking about the fact, wait a second, there's something bigger than your immediate need. Sometimes in life, God calls us as individuals or a body of people to consecration, preparation. Times of preparation, times of consecration, times of separation, times of training, times of pressing in, times of believing God, times of going to war spiritually, times of, of, of kingdom of God being taken by force, spiritual warfare. And sometimes when those times come, people say, I'm up for it. But when it comes time for seriousness, when it comes time for carefulness about care, being careful about our lives, spirituality, and a sense of responsibility. There's only 10,000 of us left, so i got to do double what I had to do before. When this time comes, some people, they get so distracted by the basic needs of life, so distracted by the immediate, the now. 
I want it and I want it now. The recreation or the, uh, or, or, or the material possessions or the television program and these things become immediate to them and they say, this is what I need. This will gratify my thirst for whatever they're thirsting for. And they forget about the things of God, the call of God, the missions of God. They go missing. Their face is under the water, drinking, and the enemy could be upon them any time. And so the careful, the responsible, those that weren't careless, those that knew that they needed things and God would provide them, but they didn't make provision for physical life, the be-all and end-all. These are the ones that God chose. But don't let us think that somehow the 300 were therefore some elite special SAS force that had been picked out through basic training. Don't, they're not the 300 of Sparta. Anybody watch that? Those films, the 300? Sparta? Nobody. <laughs> what? Oh, here we go. Come on. You Swedish, you've watched it. You've watched it. You're too busy watching Vikings, weren't you? Vikings, Vikings are harder than uh, Spartans, I tell you what. I'd bet on the Vikings. Oh, no, I wouldn't. Bet 365 again, isn't it? No. It wasn't that they were some elite force like the Spartans who were so elite, so hard, so strong in themselves, they didn't need God because they didn't have God, the Spartan 300, but they went, they, they, went through those, they went through the enemy, you know, like knife through butter. But it was all about them. These 300 were not elite. They were just like Gideon. But I tell you what they were, they were believers. They were believers. They had got to the point where they knew, I mean, I mean it was impossible with, with uh, 32,000 against 130. 32,000, it was impossible. But the 300 within the 32,000 said, well, we know it's impossible, but we believe God. And then when it went to 10,000, it was even more impossible. But the 300 said, we know it's even more impossible, but it was impossible then. It's impossible now, uh, but we believe God. And then when it was whittled down to the 300 believers, they said, well, you know, hey, God could deliver with one. It was that kind of mentality that they would rather die believing God than run not believing him. They'd rather be, be part of the assault on the enemy and go down believing God than stay afloat with the rest by not believing God. Sometimes we need to come to a decision in our lives, whatever's going on spiritually or circumstantially, where we say this to ourselves. And this will be the turning point of your life. At that right moment and at that right time, you'll know it. And you'll say to yourself like Giddens 300, I would rather go down believing God than stay afloat not trusting him. And you're prepared to go down. You're prepared to think, Jesus, I would rather go to my grave trusting my Father than call upon thousands of angels that could deliver me from this cross right at this moment. I'd rather go down trusting my Father. That type of faith is indestructible. Nobody can tamper with that kind of faith. I'd rather go, though he slay me, I'll yet trust me. Who said, I'll yet trust him? Who said that? Job. Job, this terrible situation. 
And it got worse and worse and worse and worse. The devil got stronger and stronger and stronger. And God crossed his arms and sat further and further back and did less and less during it. But during that time, Job's faith was purified. And although he had problems... I don't know what's going on. What's going on? Why would God do this? Didn't have a clue what was going on. Didn't understand it. His wife said, curse God and die. So, you know, that's great, isn't it? And he had no idea, but then he came to it. He said, you know what? God is God. And though they slay me, I'll yet trust him. I'd rather be dead with God than alive with Satan. If you believe it, say amen. amen. So there are going to be decisions. In life, not always a slay me decision, but sometimes these are little decisions on the way where you say, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be one of the 300. You know, there is a, a principle uh, called the 80 20 principle that I'm very, very interested in, made famous by the author Richard Koch, K O C H, in case you want to follow this up, Richard Koch, the 80 20 principle. And it looks generally at things in life and business. And it says that you can apply uh, the 80-20% to much of it, and you'll find that much of it is correct. And what does that mean? It means such things as this, that 80%, for example, in the church, 80% of what gets done in, say, a church or an organization, 80% of what gets done in, say, a church or an organization, is done by 20% of the people in it. 80% of what gets done, or thereabout, can be attributed to the ability and, and, and the sacrifice and the energy of the 20% in that church or organization. You look at the figures, you'll find they're true. Richard Koch, 80-20 principle. Also, in your life, you will find, generally speaking, that 80% of what you achieve is down to 20% of what you do. If you look at your work life, if you look at your student life, 80% of what you achieve is down to 20% of what you do. You need to highlight where the profitable 20% is. So it's like if you're revising for an exam. You know, when I was young, I used to revise for hours and hours for an exam. I'd be up all day and in the evening, mum said, come down, you, you can't be effective with all that. And you know she was right? Because out of the 100% of all those hours, when, you look, when I look back on it, only really 20% or thereabout was at my peak performance, learning, understanding, doing it. The rest of it, I was, I was just listening to, you know, Spando, Bally and Wham who were very popular at the time of my GCSEs. Bit of George Michael, bit of Wham, bit of Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran, had the poster on my wall, had it all. You'll find also that in companies, companies that produce things, usually in companies that, you, that produce things, you'll find that 20% of their profits, sorry, 80% of their profits usually come from a highly saleable 20% of what they're merchandising, okay? I'm just saying, it's amazing how you can take, take this 80-20 and look at the 20% in your life or whatever you're talking about, and you will find, you'll be surprised, and the figures for it, that it's the 20% that counts. So it's not always the 80. It's not always about mobilizing everybody to do everything. In politics, 
It's not the majority that make things happen. It's a very small, energised majority that are going down to Parliament, they're going on the news, that this small minority of energised people are, are, are dominating uh, the rest of what the majority do. So this is a principle, I just wanted to go down that way, to give you another way of looking at it and to apply it to your life. Now, the 300 were a minority, and God was going to use them. It wasn't that they in themselves had the power to do this. But don't think that you need everybody on board to make great waves. 80-20 principle, I press that out. Now, to come to a close. So, the 300 were there, and God said to Gideon, Look, I know that you're weak, so do you want a bit of encouragement? Yes, please. Well, why don't you go down to the camp, listen to the guards on the outside, and uh, I'll, I'll show you something. Because what you don't know in these impossible circumstances and situations, you know what God isn't doing and what God's doing in your life, but you don't know what he's doing behind the scenes. I've said this a lot over Christmas, because I think it's important God's on it. God is as active behind the scenes of your life, where he can't be seen or discerned, he's as active behind the scenes as he is when he pops up with a miracle right in front of you. We as Pentecostals and Charismatics, we're always looking for the big flash, the miracle, the breakthrough. And we think if there's no miracle, no breakthrough, no presence, no, no, nothing visible, we think God's abandoned us, he's not with us, but God is as powerfully at work when his face is totally hidden from you, when you can't discern him, when, you can't, when there's no answer to your prayers, when everything feels like God has abandoned you, he is as powerfully at work behind the scenes for you as if he sends his angel Gabriel and presents himself to you. And so he let in this secret and Gideon went and you heard in the story, they heard these guards. God was putting dreams amongst the enemy. The, the Gideon's 300 thought 300 against 135,000, we're finished. Well, without God you are finished, but you don't know what they're thinking of you. You don't know what they're thinking of you. You know what you think of you. You think of you, that you're a nobody, you're a Gideon, you're a 300, you haven't got, a, haven't got ability, you've seen the, the size of the enemy. You know what you think of you, but you don't know what they think of you. And God had been putting the fear of God into their hearts. God had been sending them dreams, giving them impressions. God had been speaking into their fears and, and heightening them. God had been causing their courage to, to sap out like wax. And they had this dream that was spreading like wildfire. And I believe there was multiple dreams going. Because when the time came, these 135,000, they were so edgy. They were so panicky that when the, um, the big jug smashed, the light came out, the 300 trumpets blew, and the shout came out. They were so on edge that they so thoroughly panicked. You might say, how can an army panic? I tell you what, when panic hits an army... It is mayhem. Total oblivion comes on people's minds, especially in the days of swords. They, they don't know what they're doing. They fire on anything. They lose total control of themselves. When panic hits a regiment in a battle, 
all hell breaks loose, you don't need the enemy anymore. They will destroy themselves. They will run over each other, stab each other, shoot each other, blind fear and panic. And that's what happened. God gave them a strategy. God will give you wisdom, us wisdom. The 300, he'll give us a plan and a strategy. And it might not seem great to us, but it'll do the job, because God's been working behind the scenes, to set the scenery for his great victory. And so there they were. They let the light shine, broke those jugs. They blew the trumpets, and then God gave them the victory. What must it have been, what must it have been like to see this total army that should have obliterated you absolutely in panic, running away, the, the, the victory, the feeling, the goosebumps, the rush, the, the, the amazement of God showing up must have been a, a moment worth living for. A moment to live for and a moment ever, forever after to remember. God wants us to have types of moments like that and he's working in our lives for moments like that. And then what happened was they got them on the run and then everybody else got in the victory. Because Gideon says, go and call that tribe and go and call this tribe because we have 300, we can't collect all these camels, all this booty, the food, the treasures, which they were, all of this, 300, there's too much victory for the 300 who won the victory. There's too much victory and there's too much enemy and territory to take. So now, all the people that weren't there, that weren't believing, they joined the victory. How many of you know when God's pioneers break through, God's pioneers, that are very few, because no one wants to be a pioneer, because it takes the type of 300 faith, but when God's pioneers break through, how many of you know the numbers swell? Success breeds success, breeds success. Now everybody wants to come to your church. Now everybody wants to be part of what you're doing, wear your badge be, and be, and be labelled with the church of the 300. Which church do you go to? I've just joined the church of the 300. Oh, I hear they're running 10,000 now. Oh yes, we're all part of it. You're enjoying the victory of hard-won pioneer faith. And that's also the danger later on when the church of the 300 becomes the church of the 10,000 and then God wants them to mobilise again. What happens? He has to whittle them down again because he's looking for those. Well, let's bow our heads in prayer. I've said enough. Lord, would we have been one of the 300? Well, we'd like to think we would be and we're challenged by the story. So Lord, help us take this story as a template for our lives and also what you're doing in us and through us. As weak as Gideon, as weak as the 300, but we can believe you, trust you, and we know that one day, one day, even if we go down, you'll bring us back up with the resurrection victory of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Maybe in your life, you thought, wait a second, that's not my Christianity. I just sort of like brought up a Christian. Just do the Christian thing. I didn't realize I could apply it to my very life, my very situation. Well, now you do. And now you know 
what God is doing and how he does it. He takes the weak things, the humble things, the contrite things. He takes the people who know they have no strength. Takes the people who know they have no power. Who know they can't do anything without God. He takes those people. And then he does wonderful, amazing things in them and through them. And it's so precious because they know all along that whatever victory they get, it couldn't possibly be them. They're just the ones that trusted. But God saw their trust. When you trust God, whatever you trust him in, however imperfect you're trusting, when you trust God, it's the most precious act of worship you could ever give him. And it's more precious than anything in this world and in the age to come. Your trusting of God will be your legacy and your Father in heaven's joy.